Welcome to the Asbury First United Methodist Church Weekly Sermon. We hope you enjoyed this message. For more information about this podcast or other ways to connect, please visit asburyfirst.org. Our final preacher in the A Little Help from Our Friends preaching series is the Reverend Joe Kim, who is the senior minister at Bothell United Methodist Church in Bothell, Washington, which is just outside of Seattle. I met Joe a couple of years ago as a part of the gathering, which is a group of large church ministers in the United Methodist Church that gets together once a year to support each other and walk alongside one another in ministry, and we became fast friends. Joe has done amazing things out in the Western jurisdiction and in that area. He has been nominated and was uh, nominated last uh, session as one of the candidates for the Episcopacy in the Western jurisdiction. We are thrilled to have Joe here and I want to welcome him and welcome you to hear his voice of hope and inclusion. Welcome, Joe. Well, it is so good to be with you this morning. What a joy to be worshiping with all of you here on site, those of you online. And a special thanks to Reverend Dr. Stephen Cady uh, for the invitation to be with you this morning. And special thanks to Reverend Kathy and your amazing team and staff here who have shown such, such warm welcome and hospitality. I bring greetings from Bothell United Methodist Church, just north of Seattle. We have been longtime admirers of your ministry of the ways in which you are at work in your community and the world. We give God thanks for the ways God has been working through you and in you for the greater good. Let's pray together as we get going this morning. Oh God, be present here and in all the places from which we are worshiping. Move in us and through us that we too would be moved and changed. Speak to us, we pray. Less of me, more of you, none of me, all of you. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Years ago, when I was in seminary, I had the opportunity to serve Salem United Methodist Church in Harlem, New York. And one of my first and only responsibilities was to uh, greet the congregation to start worship. And so the senior pastor and I, we would come down that center aisle and I would come out and call out, good morning, church, and they would reply, <laughs> and then I would continue, it's great to be with you, let's worship together. A few months later, I'm sitting in my introduction to worship class, and the professor says, who here says good morning? And I proudly raised my hand, and he quickly said, don't do that. He went on to say that in saying good morning to the congregation, I was imposing myself on them. I was expecting a response, which may or may not make folks uncomfortable, and encourage all of us to use more neutral phrases like grace and peace to you, or welcome in the name of Christ Jesus. Yeah, it made sense. So the next Sunday, I make my way down that center aisle. I stand before the congregation and I say, grace and peace to you. No one responded, <laughs> and it was more than a couple seconds of uncomfortable silence. 
After service, I watch Miss Jones, who sits three rows from the back, make her way all the way around the sanctuary until she finds herself right in front of me. And she says, Pastor, you forgot to say good morning. And I said, no, 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 Miss Jones, I, I didn't forget. I, I was trying something new. You see, I, I didn't want anyone in the congregation to feel uncomfortable. I didn't feel like you had to have a good morning. She goes, Pastor, I didn't have a good morning. It's not going to be a good afternoon. My husband and I were working three different jobs that pay for the bills. We're tired. It was a struggle to get out of the bed this morning. My body is weak. My bones are creaking. But I'm here. We're here. We came because we thought that being here, we needed to hear that it was a good morning. Because no matter what happens, when I'm at church, it is a good morning. Amen. Stories like Ms. Jones, they're not uncommon. In fact, each one of us comes into this space with our own baggage. And it doesn't look the same. But each one of us comes with this baggage because we're human. Because at times we question our worth. Because we long for connection. Because we have a hope for what's to come. You know, this past fall, I had just come off of a three-month renewal leave. In our church, we were doing some uh, intentional work, visioning and finding and refinding our values. And I remember we started asking the people in our congregation, hey, why do you stay connected to our church? Why do you keep coming back? Why do you keep the faith? Well, unsurprisingly, no one said the sermon. Surprisingly, though, no one said salvation either. I don't know if that resonates with you, but I thought as we journey through the season of Lent, we might spend a few moments this morning with that exact question. Why do we do this thing called faith? Why do we do this thing called faith? I'm going to pick up our story in chapter 10. We didn't read it out loud this morning. But I think this will set some of the context of where we are. And so we find Jesus and his disciples, they have gone through the region teaching and healing and challenging the status quo of those around, and people start to notice. People are wanting to learn from this Jesus. They want to follow a new way of living, and that scares the religious hierarchy. And this tension, it reaches its boiling point when the religious leadership makes it extremely clear that they're willing to kill this guy, Jesus, because their way had to be the right way. And they approach him, and they just flat out ask, hey, Jesus, are you the Messiah? And he responds, I've told you this. I've shown you this. I haven't hidden anything. These signs that you see me do are because the God who sent me and I, we're one, and yet you still don't believe. And so they pick up stones. They're ready to kill him on the spot then and there, and when they realize that they can't, they start to make plans to arrest him. Now, we don't know how much time has passed, but we know that Jesus goes away from Judea, where they are, and he leaves, and while away, 
we hear that a man named Lazarus was ill. And he's a brother of Mary and Martha. And even though this is the first time in this gospel that we meet this family, we, we know that they were close. And as Lazarus draws near to his death, Mary and Martha, they send a message to Jesus. Hey, Lord, the one whom you love, he's ill. And there's this urgency to this message. It's not just a statement of fact. It's a call, right? Hey, Jesus, your friend is sick. He's not going to make it. You got to come back. Come back at least to heal him. But if not that, come back to say goodbye. And Jesus waits for two days longer. He stays in the place where he is. So much so that by the time he makes it back to Judea, and that's the place where he was stoned and, or almost stoned and killed, by the time he makes it back there, Lazarus has been dead for four days, and that's enough time for him to be really dead. It's enough time for his spirit to have left his body. It's enough time for the King James Version to tell us that Lazarus stinketh. The author of John wants to make this extremely clear. This is not going to be a resuscitation. We're about to experience a resurrection. Jesus will bring Lazarus back to life. And so Jesus makes his way back. And as he is still on his way, even though the people have come already to grieve and to comfort the two sisters, Martha still comes out. She comes to meet him, and she says two very remarkable things. The first, she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Whew. And then a little later, she says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on that last day. You know, when you know the right things to say, even if they're not the things you want to say, When Martha hears that Jesus is coming, when she hears that he's finally coming, she doesn't wait for him to arrive. She goes out to meet him. And in what I imagine to be the fullness of her sorrow and the, the fullness of her grief and the fullness of her frustration, she cries out to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would be alive. She knows this Jesus. She knows the signs that he has done all around the region, the healings that he has done. She cries out to him, where were you? If you were here, if you were with us, if you had come when we had first called, my brother would be alive. But I almost feel like she catches herself because Jesus says, your brother will rise again. And she says, yeah, yeah I know. I know he will rise again on the resurrection on that last day. She knows the right words to say. She knows the right things to say. She knows the words that she has been taught to say. And Jesus, I imagine, in his ever gentle spirit, full of love, he says to her, Martha, I am the resurrection and 
the life. He affirms her statement. And I think this alone should have been enough for Martha, but he takes it one step further. You see, this Gospel of John, it's not super concerned about the end of the world or salvation. John is interested in each individual's relationship with Jesus, how one becomes a disciple of this Jesus, the the implications of that relationship with Jesus to the world today, now, in the present. Jesus says, yeah, I'm the resurrection. Yeah, someday down the road at the end of the world and at the end of our individual world, someday there will be resurrection And Jesus says, I am the life today. Today. This is his last sign. It's the last miracle that he does in the Gospel of John. And it's the one that motivates the religious leadership to make plans to go into action to kill Jesus. That's not an accident. It's this idea that life could be something more than what it is now. That things don't have to be the ways that they are. That society could be one full of the abundance of love and grace and mercy. That relationships could be life-giving instead of tearing each other down. I'm reminded of that day, August 28, 1963, Dr. King would give one of the most famous and influential speeches that we know on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, the March on Washington. 20 or 250,000 people gathered. Some say it's that spark that the civil rights movement needed. It has served as a battle cry for generations to come. School children, we, we learn the speech. We have to memorize parts of the speech But at the time, not many knew how close that line, that I have a dream line, was to not being in the speech at all. Right? In fact, even moments up to when Dr. King was ready to be at the lectern, the the speech didn't include those lines. His advisors, they they told him, don't use it. (laughs) That line is trite. It's, It's cliche. It's been used too many times before, just the week before that, Dr. King used that line at a fundraiser in Chicago. A few months before that, he's used it at a rally in Detroit. So the day of the march arrives. Thousands upon thousands of people converge on D.C., the National Mall. They're eager to hear from the speakers, and Dr. King was given that place of honor. He would speak last, he would speak longest, and with a steady voice, he gave a good speech. Uh, That's what John Lewis, the late activist and uh, civil rights movement leader, the late congressman, he called it a good speech. It, It just wasn't as powerful as what they had been used to hearing from him. And you can tell this too. If you go back and you listen to the recording, there's a pause. It's it's about a 10-second pause. And the crowd's cheering, but you can feel the unease. And I love this. From the back of the platform, about 15 yards away, seated there as the only woman on the platform. She had just sung earlier. It's the queen of gospel, Mahalia Jackson. She shouts out to him, 
Tell them about your dream, Martin. And those who were there with them say that he looked in her direction. He took his papers from which he was reading, moved it over to the side of the podium, and then he began to declare, I have a dream. I have a dream. I have a dream. I have this dream today. That last word today is so important. See, for Dr. King, that, that beloved community was not some lofty goal to be confused with the imagery of lions and lambs. It's not some goal for some day out there. The, the beloved community for him was a realistic, achievable goal that could be attained today. Church, I want to offer to you that this is why we do this thing called faith. It's because we trust in the promise and faithfulness of God's preferred future for us today. It's because we believe that the world is not as it was supposed to be, and we believe that God is still at work. It's we believe that we all have a role to play bringing forth the fullness of God's justice and love and mercy for our communities and for the world. Amen, somebody. That's your cue. Amen, somebody. If I can't hear you, that means you didn't hear me, and i got to start all the way over. <laughs> Let me tell you my favorite part of this text, and then I'll be done. It's not even in chapter 11. It's chapter 12, and I'm going to read the first two or three verses. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead, and there they gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one at the table with him. What do they do after this amazing sign? They continue to do life together. Jesus goes over to their house. They sit, and they eat, and they laugh, and they spill food, and they share, and then they rest. Because the next morning they get up and do it all over again, this work and this call to bring forth the fullness of God's love and justice in their community. They go about it day after day. They continue moment after moment. And they love God. And they love neighbor. And they live fully. And they serve all. And they repeat. In case you missed it, that's your mission statement. <laughs> this is what you do. And this is what you will continue to do. And it's because you believe in love. It's because you believe in bringing life to the community. It's because you believe in God's preferred future where all are welcome and where all belong. And it's because you trust in God's faithfulness for today. And so, church, may you be a people that declares to this greater Rochester community and to the world that Jesus is the resurrection and the life 
today. May you be a people that continues to carry forth with perseverance and energy to declare to the world that Jesus is the life today. May you have the strength and boldness to maintain your ministries and dream beyond what you can even imagine, for you trust that Jesus is the resurrection and the life Amen. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks for the ways at which you are at work in our world and especially with this community. Thank you for the gift that Asbury First has been and will be to this region and beyond. And we pray that they will have the boldness to not slow down, that they would have the perseverance to keep on keeping on, and that they would continue to live out your hope in a broken world. For we trust in you at work now, in the present, and today. It's in Christ's holy name that we pray, and all God's people said together, amen. amen. Thank you for listening to the Asbury First Weekly Sermon. If you enjoyed this message, please visit asburyfirst.org and learn more about our mission to love God and neighbor, live fully, serve all, repeat.